Good morning. Good morning. And let's, uh, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the way you run your kingdom, for your truth, for your character, for Jesus. We thank you for the freedoms and liberties that you have given us and created us to operate under. We pray that you will uh, send your spirit to enlighten our minds, help us to be able to discern where you're leading, identify places that are uh, obstacles to your ultimate plan, and empower us to fulfill your purposes for us at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, Lesson today is Lesson 8, Covenant Law. One of our online listeners, though, after listening to one of my answers to the question regarding um, the uh, metaphor, uh, the various atonement metaphors and the ransom and who the ransom was paid to, the ransom of truth that we needed to free us from the lies and set us free from lies, and the ransom of a new nature that we needed, uh, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, new heart, that that price that Christ had to pay was paid to us, we received it. They sent me a quote from one of the founders of the Adventist Church, Ellen White, from Home Missionary, uh, June 1, 1897. This is John Gross who's emailed this in. I appreciate that. I'd never seen this quote before. And it said, The Lord requires of every Christian growth in... Uh, efficiency and in capability in every sense. He has paid us our wages, even his own blood and suffering to secure our obedience. Isn't that interesting? Never heard such a direct statement about the payment being made directly to us. It was really nice to see that after we'd already reasoned out the, what the blood metaphor represents, what the flesh metaphor represents, and how it is something that we must partake of to free us from the lies and free us from the domination of the carnal nature. So that was cool. All right, first paragraph, it says, One of the important phrases in Psalms 23, where God desires to lead us, he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, declares David. Paths for righteous for his name. What does that look like? Path of righteousness. What do you think it feels like to go through the path of righteousness? If you can keep reading the psalm and you follow your shepherd who leads you in the path of righteousness for the restoration of your soul, where do you end up going? Into a valley of shadow of death. In the valley of the shadow of death. My understanding is not the valley of death. That's the valley of the shadow of death. That's the valley where the sinner dies to self. Or the Bible talks about crucifixion of the self, where we die to the old nature. That our shepherd leads us to that place where we must confront the selfishness and sinfulness in our own heart, and we either rebel against God or we surrender and die to self. And it's an agonizing, painful experience, and we see it in the life of Jacob when he wrestles with the angel, in the life of David after he's confronted by Nathan, in the life of Peter after he... Um, denies his Lord. And these are the moments of, of true conversion. And this is where the Lord will lead us. That's the path of righteousness for the restoration of our soul. But we have to come to faith. And what happens is we all have these moments where we face that and we make decisions. We either surrender and trust to Jesus who comforts us in that difficult time, heals us, and we come out the other side with our heads anointed with oil so that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or we go back into whatever we were medicating ourselves with to avoid that guilt and shame and conviction and ugly feeling, whether it is uh, pornography or addictions or busyness or whatever else it is. We run back to the old thing that we used to cope with that. Or even Eastern meditation, which people use to cope with that and avoid that true conversion experience. So what does his namesake mean? 
for his name's sake. In the Bible, God name is symbolic of his character. And so his name would be his character's sake. So leading us in the path of righteousness for his character's sake, what's the connection there? Where does God want to write his name? In our character. In our character. So we it's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. And so we're recreated within to be living temples. Living temples. Temples who are alive, who the Spirit dwells within. This is what the shepherd wants to lead us to do. Which takes us down, and that's, that's thus writing his true name, uh, or his name, in, in us. And so the next paragraph, it says, What are the safe paths of righteousness? A writer of another Psalms answers the question through a prayer request, Make me to go in the paths of thy commandments, for, there, for therein I do delight. All thy commandments are righteousness. God's law is a safe, firm path through the treacherous swamp of human existence. Yes? Going back, I'm sorry, going back to the previous statement, for his name's sake, that means our characters also play into the great controversy about who God is as well. Yes, by demonstrating, as we, as we receive and partake and he heals our character be like his, it, 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 what's it say about him? What well, tells us what his character is really like. Let's keep that in mind, because you're exactly right. But as the lesson unfolds, several points, when we talk about grace and how grace works, uh, how sin and, and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, uh, God's character keeps being revealed in his actions to take while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, his character of love keeps getting manifested in his process of healing and restoring us. Is, is, is that fair to say? The lesson says that uh, we're, God's law is safe path from the treacherous swamp of our human existence. What law lens are you using? Does it matter if we think of God's law like human law or design law? Does that matter? If people read commandments of God and law of God through the human law lens, does that lead them into safety? Or does it lead them into destruction while they follow God's law? For instance, does it lead them to legalism? For instance, the legalism of the Jews at Sinai. All the Lord says we will do. We're going to obey his law. We're going to follow the law. Did that lead them to safety? Into that form of legalism. How about the legalism of the Pharisees in Christ's day? We have a law, and the law says that you shouldn't be picking heads of grain on Sabbath. And you shouldn't heal on Sabbath. We're going to keep the law even if you don't, Jesus. Did the law, as they understood it, keep them safe? But they're keeping the law. They're law keepers. What about the legalism of the Dark Ages? who enforced its the church, who enforced its law upon people, even burning them at the stake if they disobeyed the church law. Did it keep the law keepers safe? The legalism of penal substitution theology, which promotes the, uh, the idea that God's laws function like human laws, impose rule, that sin is a legal problem, we need legal adjustment, and if not, the cosmic executioner, God in heaven, will ultimately use power to torment and kill us. If we... If we Obey law under threat of punishment. What happens to us? Are we kept safe? Legalism is the focusing on legal standing, preoccupation with legal standing and legal solutions. And I'm going to suggest to you that people can be following the path of, I'm going to follow God's law, but if they understand it wrongly, they're not actually kept safe. They're just part of the same corrupt system. 
Does this mean because of what I'm saying that we are undermining or negating God's law? No, quite the contrary. The design law of you uplifts, sustains, upholds, magnifies, validates, supports God's law. It's the protocols of reality. It can never be abrogated, never be changed. We can only be restored to harmony with it, or we die out of harmony with it. That's it. It's that simple. We're either restored to harmony with it through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, or we die out of harmony with it. So they reference Psalms 119.35 and I thought and 119.172. I thought I'd just read those from a couple different versions and let you see what how those sound. Uh, King James Version, 119, uh, 119 verse 35. Make me go in thy path, the paths of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Good news. Keep me obedient to your commandments, because in them I find happiness. New English. Guide me in the path of your commands, for I delight to walk in it. Remedy. Let me live according to your ways, because it brings me health and happiness. 119, 172. King James. My tongue shall speak thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Good news, I will sing about your law, because your commands are just. Do you hear righteousness and just the same? New Revised Standard. My tongue will sing of your promise, for all your commands are right. Remedy. Let my tongue sing of your revelations of truth, for all your laws are perfect, the protocols for life and health. The lesson says God's law is a safe, firm path from the treacherous swamps of, of human existence. I would say this is absolutely true as long as we understand God's laws as design laws. But as soon as one believes God's laws are like human laws, then they actually become a, a promoter of the destruction and the problem. They leave safety. Jesus, again, accused of being a lawbreaker, Jesus told them that when they converted a person to their system of law obedience, that they would make them twice the son of hell. Because they were teaching it as an imperial system of, of rule enforcement, not as harmony with the creator who built reality to operate in, in, in harmony with his character of love, and so you look at the history of uh, the problems of religions throughout all history, and when do problems arise from religions? When those persons begin to enforce their religious views on others. It doesn't matter the religion. Enforcement is the problem. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says the Jewish tradition has taught that uh, God made the covenant with Israel only because other nations rejected it first. Though there is no biblical evidence for that position, it does, however, bring, up, bring home the point that for whatever reason the Lord chose the Hebrew nation, it was not because they were deserving of the high honor and privilege the Lord bestowed upon them. They had no merit in their own that would make them worthy of God's love and his choice of them as his people. We'll start with the, the for whatever reasons first. For whatever reasons? To me, this is very straightforward. It's a very simple answer. There was a very profound, reality-based reason they were chosen. 
God foreknew that a branch of Abraham's family would remain faithful with enough members being faithful that through them the Messiah could come. And they could fulfill, and God could fulfill his promise to Adam that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. It was Abraham looking down the branches of the human family. Your family will have enough who will stay faithful to me that I can bring Jesus and save the species human and put an end to the sin problem. It was very simple. It was a very straightforward reason. And history proves that to be true. But what about this sentence? They had no merit of their own that would make them worthy of God's love and his choice of them as his people. Anything happening in your mind with that? Any part of your mind going, wait a minute. You dropping in any, you know, other examples to apply that to and, and, and go, wait a second. For instance, what about Gabriel in heaven? Or Adam and Eve in Eden before their fall? Did they have merit on their own that made them worthy of God's love? No. Did Lucifer before his fall? In other words, are we saying that when we're good perhaps sinless like Gabriel, we merit God's love. But when we're sinners, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, by no fault of our own, that we didn't choose this condition, but that's not really relevant, you're still not good enough to merit God's love. If this is how it's presented, and it sure sounds like it's being presented that way, then this is not actually love. It's what some call conditional love. And it corrupts and perverts the divine character to teach these ideas. God loves because he is love. What kind of God would God be if only the righteous, the sinless even, uh, Gabriel and the loyal, they're the only ones who merit his love. The rest of us don't merit it. Wendell. I think this goes back to certain people's definition of grace being a merited favor. I'm sure it does. You know, and if you if you lose the trust metaphor and go down the unmerited favor metaphor, you can go lot So remember when they say grace is unmerited favor, quote them about Jesus as a little boy. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor. But the word translated favor is the exact Greek word grace. He grew in grace with God and man. Jesus clearly did not merit or deserve his father's grace or favor. It's unmerited. You see, it doesn't fit at all. It's a bogus idea based on the false law concept and the false understanding of reality that the false law concept gives. So, as Russell was saying, for God so loved the world that he sent his only being, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. If God is for us. Well, the Bible's very clear on this. God is love. Love is not conditional. Love loves. Not based on the goodness of the other, but based on the love of the person who loves. The goodness of the response and the goodness of the other is, is impactful to them. It doesn't earn anything. The love comes from the one who loves. So... Love, let me put it this way. Love based on merit is not love. 
The lesson asks a very pertinent question regarding God's election of Israel. What did God choose Israel for? And was Israel chosen for exclusive salvation? No. Uh, what, no, what were they chosen for? To be his helpers in spreading the truth of the gospel about the coming Messiah, uh, educating about the problem of sin through the various tools that God had given them to bring people to a knowledge and awareness of the advent that coming, the Savior is coming, and to prepare the world to meet the Messiah. That was their purpose, right? The lesson goes on to state, quote, as Seventh-day Adventists, we like to view ourselves as the modern-day counterparts of Israel, or to Israel. God, called by God, not to be the only ones redeemed, but to proclaim the message of redemption to the world in the context of the three angels' message. In short, we believe we have something to say that no one else is saying. Well, first off, let's ask, are there some parallels between the Jewish people and the Adventist church? Are there parallels? Yeah, for better or for worse. Both observe the same weekly Sabbath. Both believe God is the creator of earth, of, of earth and life on earth in a six literal days and rested on the seventh day. Both have a sanctuary message. Both have dietary or health message. Both promote the importance of tithes and offerings. Both were called to prepare the world for the advent, the first advent of the Jewish people, the Seventh-day Adventist church calling the world to prepare for the second advent of the Messiah. Both believe that they were blessed by God with individuals with special inspiration to write inspired writings, and they uh, claim the, uh, the possession of the writings of dead prophets. Is that where the similarity ends? Both are corrupted by pagan views of God. Do we believe that ancient Israel? Do we believe that ancient Israel was called by God to be His people to prepare the world for the first advent? Do we believe that? Ancient Israel called by God to prepare the world for the first advent. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Do we believe that being called by God for this very purpose elevated them as a military target in Satan's estimation? In other words, in the war, they become a more important target than uh, the, the Egyptians do. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And then would we be fair that he would then spend more energy and time working to infiltrate uh, Israel, corrupt them, destroy them, divert them, pervert them? W- would that be fair to say? Yes. What about the SDA church? If it is true that the SDA church is also called for an end-time message to prepare the world for Christ's return, would they also then be elevated in um, the um, target, zone, military target of the enemy? And would he work hard to infiltrate, in fact, pervert and destroy as well? Now, ancient Israel, let's see if we can draw some lessons. Ancient Israel was attacked literally by warring nations, but that failed to destroy them. They weren't destroyed. They were damaged, but they, 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 they survived that. They were also attacked by paganism, pagan um, belief systems and fertility cult worship and so forth. But that also failed. They survived that. What was the one strategy that the devil succeeded in utilizing to infect Israel that did succeed in causing them to reject and crucify Jesus? There's one strategy, one, one weapon he used, and, and, it, and, it, and it struck home, bullet, boom, and it worked. Imperial law. It was legalism. Imperial law. God's law works like human law. Also known as the marrying of church and state. Marrying of church and state. 
Do we see parallels in Christianity and the SDA church that caused Israel to fall? Specifically, do we see that Christianity in general and the SDA church as well have embraced the idea that God's law works like human law? Yes, exactly. And the SDA church had a big division in 1888 where a message uh, by three different people, uh, Jones, Wagner, and White, all supported the righteous by faith message, the 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Transformation, healing, restoration righteousness within the believer. Real healing of hearts and minds was the message coming to the church. Preparing people to meet Jesus, because the scripture says when he comes, we will see him face to face because we shall be like him. We will be like him. We're going to be righteous. This is the real message to prepare the world. We, we have to have our hearts made right. It was rejected for the legal lie that, no, no, that's not what happens. What happens is, see, this in, you're in legal trouble. And Jesus came and took your legal position, and he paid the legal penalty to the heavenly court, and you get to claim his legal substitution in your place in the courtrooms of heaven, and God in heaven will declare you to be legally right, righteous even though you're not righteous. And that's what got accepted by church leadership. And the Adventist church, just like Israel, became legalistic. And Ellen White actually says, go look it up. Accepting the imperial law lie caused ancient Israel to reject and crucify Christ, she says of the 1888 meeting that because they took this route, had Christ come in person, they would have crucified him just like Israel did. Her words. Her words, not mine. Because this is the lie. So do we have a unique message of the three angels? I think we do. If you have design law view, it's it's incredible. It's powerful. It's transformational. It's reality-based. What are the messages of three angels? Well, I'm not going to go through the first one and the second one today because we've done those before. But we rarely talk about the third of the three. Now, you guys, I'm going to read it to you in just a second. The third of the three is considered to be the gospel. Uh, Ellen White said it is, the, it is righteous by faith in verity, in, 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 in certainty. I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to tell me after I read this where you hear the gospel and righteous by faith in this because that's what this is. Here it is from NIV 84. The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark in his forehead or in his hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for them who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey the commandments, God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Amen. Okay, the gospel. Did you hear it? The good news. Put a lot of good news in there. Righteous by faith. I'm going to tell you, this is filled with good news. It's incredible good news. If you have design law lens. If you have imposed law lens, what you just heard is a wrathful deity who's angry because you broke his rules, who is going to torment and torture. He's going to punish and he's going to kill. Uh, and it's going to be a horrible thing. That's not what it says. Let's go through. And the third angel follows a lot of ways. Anyone who worshiped the beast and, and his image receives a mark in the forehead and his hand. What is revealed here? Design law. Design law of? Law of worship. The law of worship. First thing, the first thing here is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. 
We have the freedom to pick which God we worship. Fix your eyes on Christ. By beholding him, you will be changed. Or reject the truth about Christ, embrace a system of imperialism, and you will become marked in two ways. Now, Paul talks about this in Thessalonians. He talks about the man of sin that comes, and he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. You know the man of sin that Paul talks about, the man of lawlessness? In God's temple, what temple? Yes, this is AD 65, somewhere around there. Uh, Jesus is already in heaven, reigning in heaven. He didn't go up. He's not, Paul's not saying, well, Jesus, uh, Satan rides into heaven, knocks Jesus out of his place, and begins reigning in heaven. That's not what he's saying. Sets himself in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. No, in the spirit temple. How? By getting Christians to believe that God's law runs like human law, and therefore the God that Christianity worships is an imperial dictator who's the source of inflicted punishment for sin. That's Satan. And that's who they worship when they worship that God. He sets himself in the temple. This is the Dark Ages church rising that will burn people at the stake or, or say things like, it's mortal sin to commit murder. Thou shalt not murder. Mortal sin to kill. But if you go in the crusades and kill people for the church, you get all your sins wiped out and you get to go to paradise. Not only that, we'll wipe out your, your relative's sins who are in purgatory and they can go to heaven too. But, but, but if you don't kill for the church, you kill for yourself, that's a sin. But kill for the church, that's righteous. Nonsense. Superstition. You can do things like that when your system is an imperial system. Sanctioned killing is okay. Personal killing, not so much. Unless you pay the church first in gold, and then you can do it. Because then you'll get a sanction. You'll get a little certificate. My murder certificate gives me a free pass to kill my neighbor because I'm really mad. And I only, it only cost me 10,000 gold pieces. Indulgences, they were called. Do you see the corruption? It's also the union of, of church and state. When, when governments send militaries out to kill under the auspices of, you have government permission, but you can't shoot your neighbor. Yeah. So Paul went on to say, after this same up in God's temple, um, proclaim himself to be God, that the reason that the wicked are, uh, die in the end is because they perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. They had hearts that rejected truth. They had minds that didn't like the truth, and thus they hardened themselves into falsehoods and false value systems. So the mark is in the forehead or the hand, which is the counterpoint to the seal of God. The seal of God is only in the forehead, not in the hand. The seal of God, forehead, represents where you reason, think, choose, worship, love, Okay, This is your character. And the righteous have the character of Christ. The name that we just talked about, the name of God in your character, is represented in your forehead. That's your seal. The mark of the beast can be in the forehead or the hand, meaning there's two groups that are marked. The groups that really believe Satan's versions the right way. They're the lovers of the imperial way. They're the lovers of coercion, force, intimidation, selfishness, survival. They'll kill in order to advance their cause. And then there are all those who simply go along to make sure they stay safe and they support the cause. We can look at this through history and see an example from history of the two groups marked in the forehead or the hand in Nazi Germany. Hitler, Goebbels, Mengele, and all these leaders would be marked in their forehead. They believed the system. They, they led the system. They settled their characters in the system. But there were millions of German people who, of their own initiative, would have never sought to, to 
restrict the liberty of somebody, stop people from shopping unless they had a Star of David put on their clothing. They would have never um, uh, arrested people, take somebody else's properties. But when the laws were passed, and the laws say, well, if, you, if you're of Jewish descent, you can't shop here, or you can't um, do this here, or you can't eat here, or, and, and, we get, and, we, and we have to take your property, they went along. They would have never done it in their own. But, you know, we have to obey the law. The law must be obeyed. I'm just following orders. Just following orders. They're marked in their hands. They're marked in their hands. Last week, I went to a restaurant. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to tell this. <laughs> and I walked in, in in Hamilton County, where you understand there's no mask mandates in Hamilton County anymore. The, the health department has rescinded them. The, the government has rescinded them. There's no mandate to, to wear a mask in public anymore in Hamilton County, Tennessee. And I walked into a restaurant, and the, and the uh, receptionist said, would you mind putting a mask on? I said, well, there's no mandate in Hamilton County. The health department says we don't need them anymore. Yes, but, but our restaurant still requires them. I said, well, I don't really feel comfortable putting one on. Well, I can't seat you then. So I said, well, have the manager come over. I said, can you explain to me why this is? I said, the health department says there's not a real health risk for this anymore. Why, why are we requiring it? Well, our, our corporate headquarters says we need to do it. I said, okay, but that's not the local ordinance. That's not the law here. Why, why, why are we doing it? His answer. Rules must be obeyed. That was his answer. Rules must be obeyed. And I said, that sounds like the Nazis' answers when we burn people in the gas chamber and rules must be obeyed. And and one of the little receptionists, I say little, I shouldn't say little, but young, young. I meant little as in young. She was probably a college student. Young, young receptionist uh, with her little mask on says, that offends me. I have relatives who are Jewish and wearing a mask is not the same thing as burning people in ovens. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. And that shows the corruption of thinking because I was not comparing masks and oven burning. I was comparing mindset that are willing to follow rules without thought. Because understand the German people did not go from hey, these are our Jewish neighbors who have businesses and and have all the same liberties and freedoms and rights that we have today and tomorrow to burning them. If you read the history, it was a multi-year progression of one law after another law after another law after another law that took and, and like nibbled away at their rights and, and, and nibbled away uh, to the point they're having to wear badges when they go into certain places. They can't eat and shop in certain places. They can only, their doctors had their license, could only, uh, their doctors could only actually treat Jewish patients and all types of restriction after restriction after restriction after restriction. Why? And, and you ask the people, why'd they do it? Well, the law, you have to obey the law. Watch what's happening in society, folks. We are on a trajectory that is the rising of the beast of Revelation. The idea that we respect you, the principles of Romans 14, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, we present truth and love and we lead people free, this is godly. We have concerns that maybe there's a health crisis in our country. Great, let's present the truth, let's present the evidence, let's persuade people, let's give them options, let's give them freedom and liberty like we've always done with health care across the landscape of our country. That's not happening anymore. Last week, our Q&A time, after 12 hours, was censored. It was removed. It was removed from YouTube because we violated their safe community guidelines. Because I asked medical ethics questions. I asked questions of, should we give informed consent to people? And went through a whole long list of uh, the Nuremberg Accords that, that are required. We'll probably have this one censored today, too, now that I'm mentioning this again. But you can't stop advancing the principles of God. And the principles of God are present the truth and love, leave people free. 
You can't coerce, you can't manipulate, you can't lie, you can't cover up evidence or facts or questions even that don't fit with what you want people to know. So the message of three angels, first part, people will be marked because God gives them freedom to decide their, their God that they worship. And you become like the God you worship, and you will be either marked in your forehead because you really believe that, or you'll be marked in your hand because you still live in fear and selfishness and you won't stand for righteousness and you go along to protect yourself. Next, he too will drink the wine of God's fury. We're asking, how is this good news? You understand it is good news that we have the freedom to worship. And the consequence of what we worship is part of the law of liberty, and excuse me, the law of worship. It's how God built reality. He too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength in the cup of his wrath. Where's the good news in this part? Think design law. There's a design law described here. Right, God's love. He leaves us free to reap the consequences of our choices. That's right. This is the law of liberty. We actually have freedom. What is God's wrath in Scripture? Romans 1, 18 through 32. Um, three, four or five times Paul tells them why it comes, but he says the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men to suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he tells you, well, they didn't think the, the knowledge of God was worthwhile to be retained. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands. And therefore, in verse 24, 26, 28, God does something. His wrath. Therefore, God let them go. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God surrendered them to their choices. That's his wrath. And so, again, the, the, the good news, God runs his universe based on the principles of reality. Truth, love, liberty leaves people free. But there are terrible, painful consequences if you insist on rebelling against God's design. Those who receive the mark will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. What, what, uh, this is another design law. So we got the first one, law of worship. Second one, law of liberty. Third, two, there's a third and fourth one here. Law of love and truth. What is it that actually is the source of the burning? It says burning sulfur. Do you know the Greek there is theon, theon, T-I-T-H-I-O-N, theos, T-H-I-O-S, is God. So people who study theos study God. Theology. They're theologians. That's right. Theon, if you look it up in the various lexicons, actually means divine fire. It's the fire of God's presence. It's what you saw when, when, uh, when God was at the bush and the bush was burning. When he came to Sinai and the mountain had a consuming. Our God is a consuming fire. Or Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out for him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands stand in this fire. This is, and, and, and you don't have to interpret all these things. I'm just giving confirming evidence. You can actually look at the text. It says where the torment happens. Uh, they'll be tormented, burning sulfur, the, theon, uh, fire of God's presence, but in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The text actually tells how many Christians understand that the place of hell or the place of torment is the presence of Jesus. That's what the scripture says. And when you understand that this is the fires of infinite truth and infinite love, and what does infinite truth and infinite love do to the heart and mind of the one who solidified themselves in selfishness and lies? It consumes them. It consumes them, but before it does, as they fight against it, they gnash their teeth. They gnash their teeth and they don't want to see it. They live in a world of denial. We've seen this on microscopic little itty bitty levels when you've had somebody in your own family or life who has done evil or persists in rebellion uh, and somebody in the family tries to bring truth to bear in their life. They initially are not typically happy about it. 
They get angry. They get agitated. They fight against it. They resist. They're hostile. They'll attack it. Have you seen it? But in this particular case, it's not simply the truth of facts of deeds. You stole a penny in first grade or you molested somebody. It's not even the facts that get brought to light. This is living truth. Meaning they have full awareness. It's infinite truth and infinite love. They have full awareness of God's design for life. They have full awareness of what they've done. I believe they'll have full awareness of what they've caused others to suffer. They will feel it like the other person's felt it. Not because it's inflicted, but because those connections of an infinite God in his quantum linkages throughout how he built all lives to connect will be connected. Their their denial can't keep them insulated anymore. It's reality, folks. That's where the torment happens. The law of truth and law of love. God unveils himself. He stops. So why does the suffering happen? It happens when God grants them freedom to reap what they've chosen, and he stops protecting them or shielding them from what sin naturally does to the sinner. That's why they suffer. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. What's the good news in this? Well, this is really good news. This is that because this is... The lessons that we all saved and righteous and angels learn as we observe this process that sin causes pain, sin causes suffering, sin causes death, and refusing God's healing results in torment and death. And despite the pain it causes God for his children to be lost, God will not violate his law of liberty and make them stay alive in a place of torment. He grants them real freedom for them to cease to exist. And the suffering for them ends, but the smoke is what is left after something is consumed and symbolically represents the truths and the lessons that we will all retain for all eternity so that sin never rises again. It's good news. Yeah, it's great news that he doesn't wipe our memories clean. Exactly. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image for anyone who receives the mark in his name. There is no rest for those who embrace the lie about God's law functioning like human law, system of imposed rules requiring imposed penalties. This false earthly sinful legal system is symbolized by a mark or a sign of imperial rule, and that's legislation. And the symbol of that is legislated day of worship. How did Sunday become a day of worship? By legislation. How did Sabbath become a day of rest by creation or design? So the two days symbolize two systems, a system of design law, how reality works, symbolized by one, a system of imperialism, imposed rules require punishment, symbolized by the other. But the days in of themselves are are nothing more than symbols, like flags. There's the U.S. flag. It's a symbol. It's a sign. It's a mark. It is not the government. And you can wave that flag and be an infiltrator from an enemy nation trying to undermine the country. You can worship on the seventh-day Sabbath and crucify the Lord of the Sabbath. It is what it represents that matters, not the the days themselves. Do you understand it represents truth, presented in love, leaving free, so you have the law written on your heart, you practice those methods? Or do you believe that the Sabbath, right day of the week, is an arbitrary test of obedience by an imperial God who made up a rule, is going to test whether you're going to keep it or not, if you don't keep it, he's going to punish you then you're actually waving the mark of the beast, not the seal of God. 
This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. More good news. The patient saints, those who've had God's law written on their hearts and minds, are sealed, healed, restored into unity, living in harmony with God's law, faithful in telling the truth about God that Jesus revealed. They reject the imposed penal lies told by the beast and practiced by the beastly system. And they don't seek to do justice in society through more laws, more government, and more punishment of people who won't do justice the way you think it should be done. Instead, they live justly by loving others more than self. Thoughts about that? Three angels' message. Is that how you've always understood the third? The good news. Be prepared to give the good news. It's full of good news. It's all description of design law. How God sets the universe back. Law of worship. Law of liberty, law of love, law of truth. And the historical accounts that we never forget so that we're secure for eternity. It's awesome good news if you understand design law. If you don't understand design law, then you teach all types of corrupt and horrible things about an imperial dictator who will use his infinite power to torture souls for all eternity 12-year-old, 13-year-old who was uh, molested as a kid and, and, and then went out and, and uh, overdosed and killed herself on drugs, never accepted Jesus. He will torture her for eons of time because she never accepted the payment made. But we love him. We trust him. Do you understand how corrupt that is? Monday's lesson asks us to read Deuteronomy 4.13. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tables. And we really want to finish what's coming up in the lesson today. Are the Ten Commandments eternal? No. And we're added. They were added at Sinai. They weren't in Eden. They weren't in heaven. Lucifer didn't have a law about um, sins passing down to his, his posterity. Understand, they didn't have a mother and father he needed to honor. The Ten Commandments are written for the human condition based on the principles of love for God and love for each other. The principles of love were in existence, but these particular manifestations were added because of their need. Um, a book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 109, the author writes, The will of God is expressed in the precepts of his holy law, and the principles of this law are the principles of heaven. Do you understand the difference between precepts and principles? Precepts. Precepts would be the rules. The Ten Commandments. They're precepts. They're written instructions. They're directives. That's a precept. Principles, though, so are love for Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. That's a principle. So the precepts of the, of the Ten are based on the principles of love. That's what that means. And the principles are what was the law of heaven, not the precepts, according to the author. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. Why do the angels not render service in the spirit of legality? Because they do not consider God's law imposed, imperial, man-made, legal. It's not how it works. Continuing on with this author. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels as an awakening, something unthought of. Now, what kind of law can that be? There's a law. It's in force. You're expected to live in harmony with it. You don't know about it. Only design law. That's the only, only kind that can work this way. Any type of human law requires it to be posted. You have to be informed about it. How can you be expected to obey a law you know nothing of? 
unless it's how reality works. And so Isaac Newton tells all his friends one day, hey, I discovered the law of gravity. Can't you see it? Here his friends going, gravity? There's a law about that? I, I never considered there was a law, just how things work. That's the only kind of law that can be enforced without people actually really realizing there's a law. It's just how reality works. That's God's law. So in heaven, there was no, no law written on stone. It wouldn't have made sense to the beings in heaven. Second paragraph of Monday's lesson. When you think about what a covenant is, prepare, folks. Get your nausea bucket. Okay? When you think about what a covenant is, the concept of law is an integral part makes sense. If we understand the covenant as, among other things, a relationship, then some sort of rules and boundaries need to be drawn. How long would a marriage or a friendship or a business partnership last if there were no boundaries or rules either specifically expressed or tacitly understood the husband decides to take a girlfriend or the or the friend decides to help themselves to the other's wallet or one business partner without telling the other invites a person uh, to join their venture these acts would be a violation of rules laws and principles how long would these relationships last under such lawless circumstances that is why there have to be boundaries lines must be drawn rules established only through these can relate Relationship be maintained. It's sick. It's twisted. Perverse. It's gross. It's sad. What is the essential elements for a healthy, godlike marriage? The right rules. <laughs> yeah, a transactional arrangement. A transactional legal arrangement that you can take them into a court of law if they don't comply. If you don't have that. Strong enforcement. It's sick. It's abusive. You guys said it. What's required is love and trust. What kind of law can you legislate, can you pass, can you enforce that will cause someone to love and trust you? Think that through. We have to have rules. We have to have laws. Without it, can't have a good marriage. So what laws do you want to pass on your spouse? What happens to a marriage when it's based on rules and laws? The divorce rate goes up. So Paul writes to Timothy, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law was not, is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slavers, trade, slave traders, liars and perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that forms the glorious gospel, the blessed God, he, which he entrusted to me. Who is the law given for? Why? What's its purpose? We're talking the written law now. Diagnosis. It's diagnostic. It's like an MRI. What, MRIs were built for the perfectly healthy people with no disease. No, they were built for sick people to find the disease, to expose it. Does the MRI cure anything? No. No, the law cures nothing. It simply diagnoses sickness. That's all it does. It was written like the mirror. We look into Get convicted, there's something wrong with me. To take us to the physician to cure the sick, sinful heart. For the lesson to suggest that our relation with God requires rules and rule enforcement is one of the grossest perversions of God's character possible. It perverts the gospel and obstructs God's healing plan. Does this mean that we are lawless? 
we're teaching there's no law. Not at all. Not at all. It means that, the, that God's law is a living law, and it is the law that requires our voluntary cooperation with. And this is why the Holy Spirit, God says, Zechariah 4, six, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. So imagine, when you give your spouse or child a hug, do you think, well, the law requires that I hug them. Uh, I, I want to be obedient. I, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to demerit in my heavenly record. I don't want to have legal punishment. I'll do my duty. I'll give them a hug. That's what the law requires. They better hug me back. And they better hug me back. <laughs> hey, you didn't hug me, and I don't want you to get in legal trouble. I love you so much, I'm going to spank you till you hug me. Exactly right. <laughs> or the example of marriage the lesson used. Husbands and wives think, well, I sure would like to commit adultery, but I don't want to get in legal trouble, so I won't cheat on my spouse because, as the rules say, I can't. If it wasn't for those pesky rules, though, I sure would. Marriage already uh, but isn't that a happy marriage, folks? You want a marriage like that? No. We're only safe. We're only safe. Because on stone, it says you shouldn't commit adultery. If it wasn't for that written on stone, we're in trouble, folks. Or we wouldn't have any safety in our marriages. It is foolish to teach such things. Just as Paul says, only perverts those who pervert God's law think this way. Understand, perverts are not just sexual deviants. Perverts are all these legal, penal theologians that keep perverting the character of God and perverting the idea of God's law. They're the perverts. They pervert the entire construction of God's universe. The people who, who crucified Christ as a lawbreaker were perverts. They perverted reality. More to the point, they perverted themselves. They perverted themselves, that's right. How do you explain, if God, isn't, if, we, if God isn't the enforcer of rules, the commandment, you shall not make into you an idol, form anything in the heavens above the earth beneath, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, yet showing mercy to thousands of generations. You worship the wrong God, God will punish your children. And your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. The commandment says it. It's written in stone by God's own finger. How do you understand it? If you have imposed law, he's, he's a sovereign. That's just what he does. It's, 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 it, God's ways aren't my ways. I can't understand it. It's just the way he does things. It's right. It's right. You've got to enforce rules. got to enforce rules. He's only doing this to protect. Well, before you answer the question, you should consider Ezekiel 8, 18. Excuse me, Ezekiel 18. Where in Ezekiel 18, the Lord says to them, the word of the Lord came to me, to the prophet Ezekiel, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth rot. Why are the children, and, and he goes on to say, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is right. He follows the decrees and keeps the faith of the Lord. The man, uh, That man is righteous. He will surely live. But suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood. Will that man be uh, live? No, he will die because of his sin. But suppose the son who's done wickedly has a son who does righteously. Will he die for the sins of the father? No, he will not die for the sins of the father. He will live because he has been righteous. And he goes on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, describing that the sons will not, the son shall not share the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. He will not do it. 
None of the offenses of the, of the one who's committed them, if they, be, if they repent, which he tells them to do, will be remembered. But then, then the prophet says, but you say the way of the Lord is unjust. Is my way unjust, says the Lord? Is it not your way that is unjust? You read the whole chapter 18. So here we have the commandment saying God will punish your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids for your sins. And we have God saying to the prophet in Ezekiel that the sin, the son will not suffer in the guilt. How do you understand those? Are they contradictory? Are they, do they harmonize? Are they both true? Which is the inspired one? Imperial law cannot explain this. Design law explains it perfectly. Perfect harmony. How does it happen? The commandments are describing God's construction for life. He built us in his image and gave us capacities to procreate children in our image. And we construct, construct children in our image biologically and environmentally. And when you commit sin, you alter your DNA expression epigenetically. And you not only pass along your own DNA sequences, you pass along the epigenetic structures that pass down three and four generations. And you will pass along disadvantages to your children three and four generations down, that they will have more difficulty, greater temptation, and propensities towards the same struggles that you indulged yourself in. And then you also raise them in an environment and teach them ways of thinking and practicing and they observe you and by beholding they become changed. They behold mommy and daddy and how mommy and daddy function and how they act and they assimilate into their own characters some of the same principles. And so God is describing the law of worship here. And it's exactly what he's describing. If you have other gods and then you worship other gods, your kids will learn to worship other gods. It's going to pass down generations. And so God will punish through... His original design for us, both biologically and characterologically, and his continued sustaining of those laws without change. They continue to operate. But he shows mercy to a thousand generations, as it says in Ezekiel, by anyone, despite their birth, despite their childhood upbringing, despite the corruption they might get from their parents, if they see the light as it is in God and repent and come to him, he shows them mercy and he heals them. Both are true, but only design law gets you there. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, your truth, for the way you've constructed reality to work. We have such a powerful message uh, that comes from, from your word and comes from you, the creator, and Jesus who has brought it to us. And we ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds. Help us put all these various pieces together and make us effective at this time in history to be able to advance the principles of your kingdom in the face of overwhelming threat and temptation and deception. We pray in your holy name. Amen.